Welcome to episode 62 of the Combine podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sade. I love talking to other podcasters on my show. It's always an easy conversation. This episode is with Dr. Stefan Walzer. Dr. Walzer is the CEO of Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy. He also does a lot of work in negotiation and is podcast host of the Market Access Podcast, which is linked in the show notes, by the way. Dr. Walzer and I discuss market access in Europe. We talk about how it's changing. We also talk about concepts like willingness to pay, quality-adjusted life years, and we end off by talking about negotiation and some of the work that he's doing through uh, his company, The Negotiation Lab. As always, feel free to reach out with any suggestions or suggested guests and leave a five-star l- review if you love the show. Now on to the episode with Dr. Walzer. You're listening to another impactful episode of the Combinate Podcast, the show where we drive for quality in everything, because quality is everything. I'm your host, Subi Sade. I've been working on medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and combination products for the last 10 years, and my goal is to understand. Each week, I sit down with leaders to understand and bring together medtech and biotech in order to examine the roadblocks in development and access we face and bring to light concepts and tools from our industry and others to help address those. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Market access is a really unique subject and every every person, whether it's market access or healthcare economics, whatever, every person that I talk to, you know, it's not, it, they weren't a little kid dreaming about working in market access, right? So how did you, how, <laughs> no. how, how, how did you, how did you get into it? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I dreamed about, no, 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 no worries. I mean, to be also quite clear, I mean, when we were both, probably both at, at school, right? I mean, such a kind of, let's say positioning or even the description of the job has not been has not been there in the industry at, at that point in time, right? So I think how how I went in there, you know, at the end of the day, it was also a bit of good luck, right? I mean, I studied economics and obviously I looked around, uh, let's say beyond investment banking, what is what is out there as well. And I mean, to I, I was pretty much interested in, let's say, environmental economics and health economics. And finally, I mean, I also got the chance to start in that area um, where I was firstly more, let's say, working in quantitative analysis and also health economic models, right? At that time, when I started 20 years ago, I mean, there was nothing like an AMNOC process in there, right? I mean, hardly any kind of market access processes have been available, but there was already UK NICE, meaning health economic models were needed. And I did at that time already as well quite a good number of uh, projects in the U.S. just analyzing, for example, as well, willingness to pay, right? Or willingness to adapt, those kind of things. And then just afterwards, right? I mean, after, let's say, within the whole kind of, uh, let's say, change in environment, I was also having the chance to work in the industry. And then the whole kind of processes have as well changed in basically all all parts of the world. And it has not ended at that time, right? I mean, it's it's changing basically continuously. Did you say MNAC process? Yes, um, yes, good point. AMNOC process is the, let's say, market access or reimbursement process in Germany for drugs. So that is basically when you have the approval by the EMA in Europe, you would need to request basic reimbursement funding 
for drugs in the various countries in Europe, right? And AMLOG is the component which is, or the process, which is then the one in Germany, meaning you would need to go in there, submit your case, submit your evidence for a benefit assessment, and then afterwards you have the price negotiation. And that is a, a, a horrible long word in German, but the abbreviation is AMLOG. Mm. Okay, so it's MNAG with a G at the end. Okay, yes. so that's that's the that's the part I missed. I missed, and I, I I know that you've listed that as sort of like one of the key important topics. Is is it a change? Yes, there have been a change just recently. I think it's now roughly two weeks ago where there have been some further legal changes, especially when it comes to the assessment of orphan drugs. Where mm. that let's say we have a a more light or more maybe say pragmatic process, which has been implemented some years ago in and around the AMLOG process. And that has now been a bit more sharpened, let's say, meaning that after a company or after a product has reached now a 30 million euro threshold on a 12-month basis, such orphan drugs would also need to go through the full, so no more pragmatic, but a full assessment within the stakeholders in Germany. Just one mm. of the examples. I think there are other uh, as well adaptations which have been implemented at that time. Very interesting. Okay. So you, you got into this, you, you were you were in economics, and then as you surveyed the field, the healthcare economic space was the was the bit. And then as you started doing a little bit of light work, you became more and more interested. You know, you said that you didn't technically get into market access. Really, you started doing w- willingness to pay. Yes, yes. I mean, <laughs> good, good point. I mean, just just keep in mind, I mean, the, the whole concept for willingness to pay is not even coming out of the, let's say, healthcare or health economics component, right? I mean, it, it's a quite old uh, tool, which has been used already since many years, I think it started in the 1970s within marketing and price setting for any kind of goods you can buy, right? The cool question is always, I mean, how do you and how can you price your product given that you still, let's say, can optimize your demand, right? Because you can, let's say, also say, I don't know, my next iPhone, the price of my next iPhone is maybe 5 million euros, right? And you might have that one customer who buys it, right? So you have revenue of 5 million. But if you maybe price it somewhere below, maybe, I don't know what the actual price are, but probably around 900 euros or dollars, you might have a couple of thousand or even millions of customers, right? That is a way where there are different tools available also around market research, where you can also, let's say, try to find the right balance between, let's say, the demand for product and the price for the product. And that is what we have also done for a good number of pharmaceuticals and also medical devices at that time in the U.S., so, I mean, what does that analysis look like? It, you know, actually, when you're participating just as somebody who is asked, right, it's a quite simple one, right? So there are different methods, but I think the mostly used one is basically you see, let's say, description of a product with different items, right? Which, for example, now you have a new oncology product, which can, uh, let's say, um, increase survival by three months, but adds, I don't know, two different ugly adverse events in there as well for you. So that's product A, and then you have product B, which is a bit changed, right? Maybe it's just two weeks of over survival, but no added safety events, right? And then you basically choose, right? So that's more kind of, let's say, it's called conjoined analysis. You, so you just choose, and at the end of the day, you get a big data set of obviously different respondents, and then you can analyze which kind of, let's say, items are more important. And you could even, let's say, put in there, and that's then the interesting part when willingness to pay comes in there, if you put a price in there, right? So if you have a list of items, and at the end, you, one of that item is also the price, then you can do some, some mathematics behind you say, look, okay, 
for each of those items, for example, for every second week of an additional survival, uh, you know, patients or whoever, payers, might be willing to pay X euros or dollars more in comparison to other environments. And that is where you can then do your calculation. You have your product finding, right? So you know exactly which kind of items you can fulfill. And then that is basically where you can say, ah, the price should be probably in this or that kind of let's say, area. Important here also, because I mean, we're just speaking about price in Europe. It doesn't really, let's say, work in that way, right? Because we have, let's say, ultimately not really a high amount of, of co-payment, for example. So the sensitivity on prices is basically not really there, at least not from a patient's perspective. It's rather really? from payers. And that's a big difference. That is why we have done a lot of that work in the US and not in Europe. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, so you're saying that the willingness to pay assessments are typically done on the patients themselves and not so much on the... You know, it, it depends a bit, right? It depends a bit. I mean, we have done, let's say, projects where we also had, let's say, willingness to pay as a component, but it was rather a question what, for example, patients or also caregivers, for example, want to see with the new product, right? As, mm -hmm. You know, especially maybe if you think more about administrations, right? If it's maybe oral or IV or subcutaneous, those kind of things, right? There you can already as well, let's say, analyze some preferences. That is then obviously also and a bit more interesting and important for the development process, right? If it comes more, let's say, to the price, it's always the, the, the question who pays for it, right? Mm. Or if you say, look, we might have a given amount, which is anyway being paid for by payers, but we still have a significant amount of co-payment, then co-payment might still be a driver for your uptake of the product, right? Then you'd rather do that willingness to pay just on that co-payment at the end of the day, right? Because the rest of it might anyway be covered. Mm. And so co-payment isn't really a concern in Europe? No, not really. I mean, just as an example, I mean, in, in Germany, let me quickly think, but I think in Germany, for example, we have a co-payment of, I think, 10% per prescription, but a maximum of 15 euros, one five. And it's also, I think, just, uh, let's say, uh, let's say stopped after... I think you reach, I think it's one or 2% of your annual income, right? So it's not really high, right? Um, and so that is not really a big driver. Uh, the same is probably true for most of the countries as well in uh, um, across Europe. I mean, you have a bit of different systems, I think, for example, in France and Spain, uh, but they're especially the kind of out-of-pocket kind of payments, so the on-top, uh, let's say, expenses, might even be covered by private insurances, which basically everybody finally has. I see. And so in from country to country, you have differences in whether it's private healthcare or socialized healthcare? Yes, even though that you need to probably keep in mind that across Europe, you basically have kind of more socialized healthcare anyway, right? It's just different systems, right? I think biggest difference are probably that in, what is it? Probably, a, yeah, it's probably a majority of countries you have more tax-based, let's say, social systems where the, where the, let's say, government is basically putting the tax money into the system. And then you have a, a, a kind of hybrid models like in Germany, where you also have parts of it through taxes, but probably more of a smaller proportion of it. You have rather kind of premiums which need to be paid. And then you have in Switzerland, for example, an extra kind of component where you have also private health insurances, but they need as well to deliver certain, let's say, basic services which need to be covered for also a certain kind of premium. And then you can obviously add up for different kind of additional packages you could basically choose off. 
Okay, so so in let's let's maybe dial it back because we're we're in the weeds right now. Let's let's take it up a little bit. So I've talked to market access folks in different areas, and I have very surface level understanding of the, say the U.S. and Canada, and and maybe the the Middle East and some other countries that do like reference pricing as their as their main sort of end all be all. That's not really the case in Europe for the most part, right? Mm, I would not say that. <laughs> well, then, okay, I mean, then, 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 then I reference guess price is. system is is also important in Europe. I mean, you have this, basically you have different components in there, right? So what within let's say what basically all payers are doing is they first analyze the evidence package, right? So what what do they really let's say or what do the the, the products basically provide to their patients, right? Meaning which endpoint was measured, you know, which kind of added benefit at the end of the day you have, right? And then you have already different ways how that could be done. Then the second component is rather than really more, let's call it more the economic part of it, right? And there you have some more, let's say, more sophisticated countries, for example, the UK, but also some of the Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands, where you need to provide health economic models, right? So statistical analysis, including the, the health part, which basically is the evidence base, and then also coupled with the cost component, right? And then you can do some analysis, some math behind, and you get a different health economic results like cost effectiveness ratios, right? And others are basically then saying the economic component is rather a negotiation, right? Which means we have the different components of your product, meaning the benefit, the added benefit, maybe also the discussion on public health, the importance in within the public health for your product. And then we, you basically negotiate, right? What the right price could be. That's the second component. And then you have the third one, which is also important, which is basically looking on the other countries. So some countries are for sure having price references. Even Germany has that now since run now roughly, I think 10 years. And most of the others are as well doing it. We've just been in in a negotiation, for example, for a product in Austria. And one of the first questions was also, okay, that's that that sounds interesting. The evidence base looks good, but how do the German and French payers, how much do they pay for it? And then you need to explain it, right? And obviously the important thing is not only the list price, you know that probably also from the US, right? But it's especially the price the payers pay for, meaning are there any discounts, any rebates, any price models, etc. So yes, you have also the reference price system basically applied for also in Europe. Okay, understood. So step one, evidence package. Step yes. two is either either you said countries like the UK and a couple of others request you to provide them health economic models or yeah. it's a negotiation. That's step two. And then step three is the reference pricing. Can you can you maybe spend a minute <clears throat> talking about discounts and rebates and because that's maybe a, a little bit controversial, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the discounts, rebates, I think that's that's obviously the, let's say, the kind of core issue by payers as well, right? In some countries, you even have, let's say, mandatory discounts. So discounts oh. you anyway need to give. Yes, absolutely. And that's also just by the way, I mean, the mandatory discount was also increased within the reform uh, you have just mentioned before and as well in Germany two weeks ago from seven to 12 percent. Um, you have that, but also in, in other countries. Right. Um, it just depends a bit. And then you have obviously, let's see, how we call it more the price finding. Right. How could you come to an agreement between a company and the payers? Right. Or the payer system. 
And here it's obviously a bit of the question, how strong is the evidence, for example? And what is the potential price a company wants to have for their new product? I mean, if it's more price, which is, let's say, in line with what payers have in mind, meaning a kind of similar product or even the same kind of product in the same group, right? So similar kind of benefit and the price should be then around the, let's say, same price level. Then it's probably a bit easier, right? Then it's sometimes even quite easy and just say, let me look. I mean, we just take the same price or, you know, sometimes they pay even a bit more, right? But that's, you know, in a kind of small corridor in there. I think where it's getting a bit more complex is just imagine you have a product for an often disease, right? Or just take the first ATMPs, right? I mean, how do you want to charge those? I mean, you have maybe only in a country 10, 15, or maybe 50 patients. And when you have population of 80 or 100 million, right? I mean, so it's really only very few of those patients, but you still want obviously to have a, a, a good amount. And on top of that, obviously, it's also the question, what does that product potentially provide you or the patients, right? I mean, how much do you want to, to, to charge, for example, for a cure? Or how much do you want to charge for 12 months or six months of survival? But it's the same, I mean, how much do you want to charge if you can live, let's say, symptom-free for, let's say, half a year, four weeks, two weeks, whatever it is, right? So that's always a bit of a, of a delicate kind of discussion. But ultimately, it ends up to where, let's say, both parties need to, to agree in a way on a given amount uh, to ask for. And some countries, as I said beforehand, are doing that maybe a bit more, I don't want to say more systematic, but it, in another frame, right? Like the health economic, let's say, driven countries, UK, etc. So they have a more clear vision. So this is the, for example, cost effectiveness threshold. So the, the cost per quality they want to pay for. And it's still, you know, it's not a fixed amount, right? It's still a bit flexible, but you have a frame for that. Then you have some countries where it's more a negotiation. And that's basically the kind of, let's say, difficulty, obviously, if you approach all of those different countries. You used an acronym, QALY? Yes, it's a good one. It's a quality adjusted life year. So it's, if you, I mean, we just had that willingness to pay or the preference example beforehand, right? Where you just said, look, we have a product where that product, that new product might, let's say, provide you six additional life years, meaning you're surviving six months longer in comparison to the current kind of, let's say, standard practice, right? But six months is always a question, right? If you spend those six months, let's say, in an ICU unit versus maybe you're dying after two months, but you can maybe still do your last kind of holidays or spend more time, quality time with your family. It's a big difference, right? That is basically what quality basically tries to measure, right? So what is the quality aspect of that additional life year? So if you have, let's say, that's normally on a scale from, from zero to one, right? One is perfect health, zero is obviously death. And then you basically try to weigh that, right? So is it 0.8, which is a kind of average for all of us, right? Nobody's in a, in a one, right? Perfect health is probably not really something we can all detect somewhere. But it's normally, let's say, if you do calculation and, and analysis, you basically get a utility with that quality of life, bless you, uh, you. Um, which is that kind of quality of life measure between 0.8 and 0.9, right? And if you're getting really into illness, you're getting more to 0.5, 0.4, sometimes even 2.3, right? So it's really severe illness with pain, et cetera. And that's basically what you put in there, right? That you have a better kind of comparison of the longer life. Mm, okay. And so going back to mandatory discounts, can you explain that a little bit further? It, it, the, the discount is against what? 
the discount is against your price, right? So it's it's so a mandatory discount basically simply means. I guess I'll ask the question differently because in in my sure. head, right, discount is always a relative thing. So for example, I know you charged my friend a hundred dollars. I want a discount, right? But you know, let's say the list price is. Do you? I I'm not sure if the question makes sense, but it's not. You know, a discount is always against something that's a moving target. I guess. You can tell somebody it's a hundred dollars, but that's fifty percent off, or you can tell somebody the list price is a hundred dollars. That's a part that I don't fully understand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, discounts are especially mandatory discounts are just let's say percentages of your list price, right? So I think in Germany, for example, currently it's twelve percent of you are requesting as a list price. So before you go into negotiation, you say, I don't know, my product costs two thousand euros. You basically need to always pay in any way, 12% of a discount. So you basically only have, let's say 88% of your price ultimately as a net price to start with your negotiation. And then you need, need to negotiate further down, further rebates, right? But that that's that's the part that I don't understand. Wouldn't you just inflate it by 12% to get what you... <laughs> is that Brilliant that? point, Subi. That's what I normally tell as well payers, right? This kind of effect is interesting. But at the end of the day, it's only, let's say, it only has a positive impact for the healthcare system and its budget, probably for, what is it, maybe four weeks or eight weeks. So basically only the time where companies can include that in their calculation, right, in their planning. Because afterwards, I mean, you know, if if I know now that, that I would need to give, let's say, 12% of a discount, I anyway already include that beforehand, right? So I don't go in there with $100, but I go in there with $112 that mm. I can completely... Take the $12 back again. So I'm at my starting point in any way. So that's where I'm not exactly sure if all of those savings, what some health economists are also calculating for systems, are really true, right? Because ultimately, this only holds for products which are currently in the process. I gave you the example in Germany beforehand, right? Two weeks ago, there was the, the further reform, which has been just, let's say, implemented. And besides other points, the mandatory discount we're just discussing has been increased by 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 five percent, right? And for that five percent, so on top five percent, um, some companies might not have included that in their kind of planning because there were that was a bit of a let's say moving target in the political discussion, right? Sometimes it was a bit higher, sometimes a bit lower. Some just wanted to get it out. So maybe there were some companies currently in the negotiation process which have not been taken that five percent into account. But latest now. Everybody knows that your discount you need to give to the German payers at the start of the negotiation is anyway and always 12%. So it's exactly as you said, you basically go in there with 112% in a way that you start with your 100% later on. So ultimately, I would say for the system, there are no real savings in the long run, I think. Mm. So when when the AMNOG is is the process, right? It's yeah. it's it sounds like it's sim similar to CADF in Canada. Is that right? I mean, AMNOG was was just a name for a new process which have been implemented, and then you have different institutions which are basically oh, that's okay, a driving okay. process. So it it is it is different. Yes. Sure. Okay. So so I'll, I'll ask it differently. So, you know, you mentioned the change in the, the legislation that adjusted that, that rebate um, um, or the discount, among other things. What what do what because there's the German healthcare system, but the EMA is doing the approval of the drugs. 
yes. te- the technical approval. Yes. What is what is that whole interaction like between the uh, sort of the healthcare systems, competent authorities, and EMA? Yes, good, good, good question as well. I mean, firstly, the decision makers, so the payer decision makers, they are, let's say, let's call it, take the approvals into consideration. I mean, there are different systems in there as well. So at the end of the day, for example, in Germany, it's not allowed currently to exclude patients for which a product has been approved, meaning in the UK, for example, but also in other jurisdictions across Europe, you can say exclude given patient if you or if a company cannot show in subgroup analysis a decent amount of an added benefit, right? Meaning we had that example with survival. If you have a product mm. which on average or median has uh, has shown of a, let's say, six months overall survival, additional um, overall survival, and there's maybe a subgroup of Take, take maybe the younger patient, right? Every person younger than 60 years of age has maybe only an added survival of maybe two weeks. In some countries, mm-hmm. that basically led to the fact that the product is not being reimbursed for patients below that age group. In Germany, it's not really loud. However, what they're, take, what they're doing there is basically saying sometimes, right, that they do also the subgrouping, just say within that a subgroup of those younger patients, there's no added benefit, meaning... The price needs to be the same as the current standard of care. Whereas mm. for the other subgroup, where you have a higher added benefit, then suddenly you can obviously charge a higher price and then you do the weighting, right? So ultimately, yeah. still all patients have access in that jurisdiction, but maybe with an adjusted price. Whereas in other jurisdictions and countries, you might see the fact that for some patients, it's not, let's say, reimbursed, even though that you have the label by the EMA, for example, or also by the, let's say, for, for medical devices from the from the different institutions. Yeah, okay, understood. So so what you're saying is that if the if the benefit is marginal, <clears throat> certain countries will just exclude it potentially or exclude certain patients from access to it because there isn't much of a gain for certain patient yes. populations. I've seen that before where it's kind of like if the if the drug is has a significant improvement from the existing if it's marginal or no improvement, yeah. right? And and basically it becomes not so much, it becomes like competitive reference pricing if it's basically no added benefit, right? That's exactly, exactly, exactly. And I mean, just on top, I mean, there are also, let's say, environments where they just simply say we do not reimburse for it, right? A lot of times it's obviously a question on price. I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, if there's no added benefit, for example, against a really old and cheap kind of um Comparative therapy, it's also difficult for a company, right, which developed that product with a huge kind of R&D program, et cetera, just to accept such a low price. But ultimately, I would also say, let's say generally, a product could be always reimbursed. It's always a question on the price. So you 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 run a podcast where you talk about market access every other week, right? You drop a new episode. Yes. Do topics run out? No. Never. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny, I have already, exactly. I mean, I have already ideas and some of those already, let's say, put into my calendar until mid of next year, right? And I could probably even have more, right? There's so many things ongoing, right? Even within a country. And just imagine what is going on between different countries, right? We have not even touched base, for example, on some very specific components in Asia, for example. But I'm not a big expert, but I know that there are some specific. Then you have the 
the whole kind of let's say Brexit, which had an impact, right, on on the reimbursement, not only in the UK but also within Europe, right? Then you have the whole kind of economic downturn. You have the whole kind of discussion now in the US with the inflation kind of discussion. I mean, it's it's huge, right? And then you still have the method kind of stuff where you just say, ah, you know, somebody came up with a new statistical measurement, so let's apply it. But that has obviously a different implications and gosh, a lot to discuss. <laughs> yeah. How how has podcasting influenced? Because you've been, you've been at it for a while, right? How has it influenced the way that you do things? I mean, I think for me, it's just a great way to firstly, obviously be in, in close contact with other experts. So we have a lot of, let's say, expert discussions. I mean, sometimes I have even decision makers um, where we just discuss very specific kind of issues in, in, in different countries. But I think interestingly was uh, I've just been at ISPOR, uh, which is a, a European, or it's it basically, it's a, Euro, it's a conference. And four weeks ago, it was just happening uh, in Europe, in Vienna, where it was quite interesting because... I just recognized that really a lot of people just listen to the podcast, right? So it was just, you know, stopping by here, stopping by there, and everybody had another idea, right? Or another kind of comment. And, you know, I heard this or that. So it it it's just great. It's just, let's say, adding further interactivity in the whole kind of concept. And I mean, on top, I mean, I don't know whether you've seen it, but I'm also trying to, let's say, offer to students. I'm also teaching at the different German universities. So I'm also offering to my students, instead of writing an exam, they can basically podcast, right? So I invite them and obviously they get their grades, right? But they love it, right? It's just another way. You need to really understand it. You need to dig into the details. You need to think how to best present it. It's just great. It's just, I think it's just a great way of getting your, yeah, let's say your sometimes also difficult content to different to a different audience, right? Yeah. You you also run the negotiation lab. Yes, yes, yes. What's that about? <laughs> Another initiative. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so the negotiation lab is also quite an interesting one because obviously we are running and doing a small negotiation since many years, right? I mean, just within Mars since 10 years, but I mean, I was also participating in different negotiations when I was in the industry beforehand. And what we have just seen as well in the last <clears throat> couple of years is that more and more, let's say, companies need to say, negotiation simulations or negotiate negotiation coaching and we have just put say, the our knowledge and our experience together from Mars but also from different other areas for example there's a company in the UK called decisive consulting where we basically put as well our kind of knowledge together together also with somebody from the Harvard negotiation program and we have also developed at the same time a virtual reality platform where we oh. can just say look I mean put the glasses on and you basically are in the rooms of the negotiation body, right? So for example, we have also programmed the German negotiation rooms in there, right? So everybody could really recognize how it is and you can increase a lot more the stress level, for example. And the negotiation lab is just really, let's say, trying to um, prepare different stakeholders, not only, let's say, for healthcare payers, but also, for example, if you go into press conferences, if you go to generally kind of, let's say, um, medical conferences, or if you are going into discussions with investors, that you have a frame where we could as well just help the individuals to even, let's say, improve their negotiation skills and capabilities, then finally to negotiate, hopefully, the best outcomes. Is it is it mostly, you said, simulated practice? It's a lot simulation. It's a lot practices, exactly. So obviously, we also, let's say, coach 
the call it theory behind, right? So what is important? How should we you comp how should you uh, prepare? What do you need to bring on the table? What do you need to have in let's say in your in your negotiation mass, let's call it? And then finally you need to train it, right? I mean, how do I offer a first price discount, for example? How do I explain how I came up with the price, right? How do I uh, maybe also defend? that my product is really good and my evidence base is great, right? And you can obviously take that from the different angles. And the other interesting point is obviously, if you have those VR classes, you could even have, uh, let's say, payers on board, right? Because, you know, you could have it blinded, right? They can just put it on there. Um, if you're, for example, taking a client from the US and we have, for example, a French payer, they can maybe hear that the payer is French, right? Because of the accent, but they don't know who it is, right? So they can even train basically with real payers before they go into the actual negotiation for the product. Mm, interesting. What what recommendations do you have generally for people becoming better negotiators? <laughs> I think ultimately really um, prepare, take the hat of the other side and just understand where they might be coming from and then really practice, try, try to Try to, let's say, try to really practice the different next steps that you are really prepared when you're really sitting in front of, yeah, in front of the other side, right? Because ultimately, you need to be in a situation where the stress level could be minimized, right? Because we, you know, we're all humans, right? If we're getting to stress level, we try to escape. And that's what not should happen, what should not happen, right? You should be still quite relaxed. And, you know, there are situations, you know, when you're really sitting in there for, three, four, five, six hours in a row, maybe not with a lot of breaks and, you know, you're getting tired, et cetera. You know, you're getting stressed, right? You, mm. you, you, you know, you could, you could also get, let's say, emotional. And that's obviously what you need to train, right? Still be calm. Still try to ask the right question. Try to get further information from the other side. So it, it's a process, right? And sometimes it's, you know, like, like when you're coaching, for example, in sports, right? You need to find and understand where the where your skills are and where your maybe weak points are. And then you need to maybe coach and train in some, maybe not always only in the weak area, right? But sometimes also even stress further your advantages, your, your powerful kind of skills, et cetera. So that's all of that kind of, let's say, process you need to take into consideration. Yeah. And, and stress is like fatigue, sort of. The more you accumulate, the more it, it, it kind of compounds. It's not, it's not linear. Exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. As as we as we close, Stefan, what's a book that changed your life? <laughs> a book that changed my life. Oh, that's a good question. A book that changed my life. Or um, one or one that you it's... give as a gift. <laughs> oh, that's more difficult, huh? I mean, mm. it's two different questions. I mean, one for sure is let's say health economics by my PhD supervisor, uh, Peter Zweifel. It's just simply called Health Economics. I think it's it's a really good book. More for economists, I think it's quite mathematical sometimes also in there, but it's a really good book. And I think the other one, I think yeah, a lot, right? On, I mean, on, on the Harvard uh, negotiations, uh, let's say, what is it called? Uh, I think uh, in Germany, I think it's called win-win uh, situation, something like that. I don't know. I think the title in English is different. And uh, that's obviously a good one, but there are a lot of those, right? The, the 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 price of global health, for example, by Ed Schoenfeld is also a really good one, which gives a great overview on the different market access, let's say, processes, and also about the different kind of systems you have across the world. It's also a great one. Mm, um, I, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I've been reading maybe a 
third or halfway through a book called Who Has What Nation Has the Best Healthcare or something like that by Ezekiel oh. Emanuel. And he yeah. has a section around pharmaceutical pricing. I don't know if you've heard of it, but the the price of global health. Yes, the price of global health is a really good one. I think there was a quite new edition, I think probably last year, as far as I remember. Very good. Um, what's something you're excited about? Ah, a lot of different things. <laughs> I love football, meaning <laughs> soccer, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what I really like. I mean, I you know, I, I love spending time with my family and I love to have really good academic discussions, right? So, you know, it could be even kind of fights, right? I mean, one of my team members, good friend of mine, I mean, we, we love just to discuss, uh, let's say, also projects until we are in agreement, for example, how to best frame it, right? And if somebody, let's say, is looking probably on us from outside, they might really think that in that situation, we might hate each other, right? Just because, you know, we're really fighting and struggling and you know, trying to find ways and et cetera. But ultimately, no, it's just around the content, right? And that's, I think, where it's really getting great, right? And when you have found a solution there, you know, we can as well just, uh, let's say, fall back, relax, and have a good beer. Yeah, my I have four younger brothers, and many t- there's two of them who, as soon as you sit down with them, they'll ask a really convoluted philosophical question, and everybody's like that. So, um, yeah, exactly, that's that. perfect. I love it. I love it. Thank you for coming on, Stefan. Your podcast is the Maps Market Access uh, podcast. I think it's the only one of its kind. Exactly. We'll 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 plug it in the show notes. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you. So, be great discussion.